Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everyone. Me again, Laszlo Montgomery, with another China History Podcast. Huizong Part 3 today. As the primary source for this episode, I'm still using uh, University of Washington Professor Patricia Buckley Ebrey's recent biography of Emperor Huizong. That's by Harvard University Press. I have an Amazon link to the book on my homepage. The first two episodes, we watched Huizong grow up within the system, enjoying a nice, perfect life. Then in the year 1100, his older brother, the Zhuzong Emperor, dies suddenly, uh, an affliction that befell monarchs of all kinds. And Huizong, against his will, became the new emperor. And we saw how, as a patron of literature and the arts and a builder of temples and monuments and the, the ultimate decider of what was tasteful and what wasn't, it, he perhaps knew no peer in all of uh, Chinese imperial history. He didn't want to ascend the throne when Empress Xiang told him he had to, but, but he got used to it. And once he settled in, Huizong embraced being the emperor and all that it meant as a literatus and an artist. Huizong believed his achievements gave him the right to assume he was the wisest of them all when it came to matters of literature, design, and the fine arts. The same went with imperial culture and palace rituals. Huizong loved to get in the middle of this, too, surrounding himself with the greatest talent of the day, no matter painter or craftsman. Huizong did this with a passion. He attracted the best, and he surrounded himself with all this talent, all the time, and made himself the center of it all. And to show you, he didn't just sit around all day cavorting with artists and poets. Huizong, by 1116, had managed to sire and accumulate 50 children already. And he'd still have another 15 more to go. Within just his first two years on the throne, Huizong's five consorts had given birth to five girls and two boys, including the crown prince, who we'll get to towards the end of this episode. This made Huizong the champ. He was the undisputed champ. His closest rival, as far as number of children went, was the uh, Xuanzong Emperor from the Tang Dynasty. He had 60. Third was Ming Taizu, a.k.a. the Hongwu Emperor, Zhu Yuanzhang. He had 42. Even Kangxi and his grandson, Qianlong, with their six-decade reigns, only had 35 and 27, respectively. By the 17th year of his reign, Huizong was already a grandfather. Oh, what a happy life. Too bad it's all about to change in this episode. I thought, before I put down my quill, 
let's skim the surfaces of Patricia Ebrey's book and look at some of the things that went down in the palace. There was the Zhao imperial family, all of Huizong's 20 consorts and 123 other palace women, the eunuchs, the grand counselors, the Buddhists and Taoists, and all the many scholars and others who, for one reason or another, had access to Huizong. Let's look at that. I mentioned before, Huizong, well, what is there to say, except he, he believed in Taoism. That was the center of his life as he began his second decade on the throne. We mentioned uh, Liu Hunkang last episode, the great Taoist master who Huizong put so much trust and faith in at the beginning of his reign until Master Liu passed in 1108. This episode, we'll meet another master. We'll look at the geopolitical dynamic that defined the times, the Liao dynasty in the north, founded by Yelu Abaoji, who we introduced in CHP episode 126. They're about to go down hard. The Xixia, the Western Xia, they're still a viable force out in the northwest of Song, China, uh, west of the Liao borders. But most of all, this is the time some, some real badasses make themselves known, and we're going to look at them too. These were the Jurchens in Mandarin. They're called the Nujian. As we begin our story this time, the Jurchens are still subjects of the Kitan Liao. Much later on, they're going to be known by a new name, the Manchus, and they're going to invade China in 1644 and set up the, the Qing dynasty. The Council of State usually had anywhere from five to seven men, including the top two, the senior and junior grand counselor. Their main job called for them to handle any and all matters concerning the state. If it rose to their level of importance, they would debate the matters internally, advise the emperor, and use their influence to get some sort of decision. Then they had to send the order on down the line and you know, make sure it got executed. There were 47 men who served on Huizong's various councils of state. From previous episodes, we remember Huizong went with the same slate of counselors that his deceased brother Zhezong had when the politics became too out of control, he hearkened back to the time of his father, Shenzong, and uh, brought back that generation of reform-minded counselors. The one constant in his reign was the presence of Tsai Jing as Huizong's senior grand counselor. Tsai Jing had climbed his way up the ladder, rung by rung, uh, walking over the body of Zheng Bu to get where he wanted to go. There were three big political shakeups in Huizong's reign, and all came about during times when Huizong was influenced by others to get rid of Tsai Jing. By 1120, Tsai Jing was, was way past his sell-by date, and he, he insisted to retire, but Huizong wanted him on the team, even though he was old, feeble, and despised by his enemies at court. He was quite a polarizing figure who could count enemies in both the reformer and conservative factions. But Huizong's reign was one in which the reformers had the equivalent of a supermajority, so the laws that were passed were rather constant. This is how Huizong viewed uh, Tsai Jing. I quote, Think of Shenzong, when first devoting himself to seeking good government, advanced Wang Anshu, making him grand counselor and with him devised ways to achieve good order, brilliantly forming the institutions for a king. 
Wang's great accomplishments extended everywhere in the realm, and he was treated in an unprecedentedly magnanimous way. When I began to rely on my good assistant to reinstate my predecessor's plans, I employed the right man. Therefore, I have not dared treat my trusted assistant in a way inferior how Shenzong treated Wang Anshu. Consequently, for twenty years, the world has been at peace, and not one man or animal has failed to benefit. Even children and servants know that Tsai Jing is the grand counselor who brought this great peace. Now, Tsai Jing wasn't the only one. There were a few dozen others who came and went and also advised Hui Tsung. He was a decent boss to work for. If a counselor gained the emperor's trust, he was often given a free hand to get the job done and didn't have the emperor always poking his nose around like he did with all the monument building and literary related matters. Poetry, painting, and calligraphy, those three things provided an additional bond between Huizong and Tai Jing. And Tai Jing was very lauded in his day for his abilities with not only a paintbrush, but a calligraphy brush as well. There are several Huizong paintings hanging in Beijing and Taipei where the emperor asked Tai Jing to embellish them by adding some of his calligraphy to the painting. And as a poet, Tai Jing could hold his own no matter who was in the room. So Tai Jing was the central character in the world of Huizong for most of his reign. Huizong believed you picked the right person. If you, if you picked well, they would handle everything for you. And that's how he treated Tsai Jing. He had full trust in him. But Tsai Jing was so polarizing. There were others who were convinced Tsai Jing was, was leading the Song dynasty down the toilet. Even though Huizong succumbed to political pressure and got rid of him a few times, he always brought Tsai Jing back. In retrospect, though, one of the main criticisms historians have of the Huizong emperor was that for political and state matters, he preferred to leave that up to his chief ministers and play a backseat role. His enjoyment and pleasure came from matters concerning poetry, calligraphy, painting, architecture, Taoism, and other leisurely pursuits. I haven't covered the history of the eunuchs as a topic yet. Uh, some dynasties, they were particularly powerful and devious. The late Han and late Tang in their final years of decay were two of the more famous periods when the combined influence of the palace eunuchs was strongest. At the court of Huizong, there were two of particular note. One was Tong Guan, and the other was Liang Cheng. Tong Guan is one of the co-stars of this period in Huizong's life. He was a eunuch general who had captured Huizong's attention due to his early, important military victories. He later on became one of Huizong's most trusted intimates, advising not only on the military but state policy as well. He was very charismatic and knew how to lead men in battle. Liang Shicheng was another major insider at the court of Huizong. He was a behind-the-scenes administrator extraordinaire and had risen up the ranks from the bottom because of the power and influence of Tong Guan and Liang Shicheng, as well as their constant access to Huizong. They were both magnets for resentment and ill will. When everything starts to fall to pieces later on, you could bet these two eunuchs and their faction will get plenty of blame heaped on them. Around 1113, 1114... Huizong slowly began to draw some palace eunuchs into his confidence and to advise them. He even trusted them to write 
imperial brush edicts using his distinctive slender gold calligraphy style. Later on, even the grand counselors are going to have to go through Liang Shichang to get to Huizong. That's how tight the hold was to the innermost core of central power. And another thing about eunuchs, if history had proved one thing by the 12th century, it was that once these eunuchs infiltrated the innermost workings of the government, it was next to impossible to get rid of them. They were, they were like flypaper and made themselves you know, indispensable for certain things. As the years passed, Huizong's passion for Taoism increased profoundly. As I mentioned, Huizong was always a believer in Taoism. In 1111, he recovered from a very serious and life-threatening illness through, he believed, the involvement of a Taoist master who got credit for Huizong's miraculous recovery. After that, Huizong had a few dreams and visions and became convinced that Taoism was the way. There were several masters after Liu Hunkang who exercised great influence over Huizong. There was Wang Laozhi, Wang Zixi, and most of all, Lin Ling Su. With Lin Ling Su's divine empyrean brand of Taoism that incorporated Huizong into its version of a pantheon, Huizong found something that he could enthusiastically get behind, and much to the chagrin of everyone around him. Huizong was given everyone the hard sell about accepting Taoism to the, you know, to the degree he was. By 1116, Huizong was practically a walking, talking advertisement for Lin Ling Su's divine imperium Taoism. In 1114, Huizong got things going with the project to put together a new standard Taoist canon of works. This put a lot of Taoist scholars and masters to work, and the result was a more organized version of what they had previously. With a little whisper here and there from Lin Ling Su, uh, Huizong between 1116 and 1119 went overboard in the amount of Taoist-related construction projects he initiated. And whenever any palace officials would go pay a visit to the emperor, you could bet they found Huizong surrounded by any number of Taoist masters trying to get something or other out of him and filling his head with all kinds of notions. Huizong liked having them around. Lin Ling Su had the good fortune to be lined up on the right side of some good omens. Back in the 12th century, if you were a Taoist master and your predictions came true and you had carried it out, all kinds of Taoist rituals to force the turn of events, I mean, your stature would rise. Lin Ling Su had a good run for a while. Plenty of miracles and, and whatnot were attributed to his talismans and incantations, so his stature was quite high. And Huizong, being one who didn't mind having, you know, sink offense around, ate it all up and licked the plate as far as, you know, Lin Ling Su's declarations that Huizong was a Taoist god and, you know, couldn't do no wrong. Huizong showered this guy with titles and honors and you know, no doubt gave him plenty of gifts of his own calligraphy. That was like Huizong's autographed photo of its day. If there was anything important that needed deciding, Huizong ran straight to Lin Ling Su. By 1117, it was, it was really starting to get out of hand. Huizong was fashioning himself as the spiritual head of all Taoism in the land. Patricia Ebrey mentions about Lin Ling Su, quote, 
He was, of course, not the first religious professional to flatter a ruler or speak of him as divine. Among Buddhists, the concept of expedient means provided a rationale for gaining a ruler's support through displays of magic or flattering references to him as a living Buddha. You know, she also pointed out that, quote, Taoists in the service of Tang emperors undoubtedly often catered to the ruler's predilections in hope of gaining support. And when several clerics gained access to a ruler, rivalry for influence frequently resulted, just as it did among civil officials. Plenty of Buddhist temples were taken over and converted into Taoist temples. That's the kind of stuff that was happening, and Huizong was letting it all happen. He put his full weight behind Taoist education and making it part of the curriculum of schools. The big four Taoist texts that everyone had to learn were the Laozi, Zhuangzi, Liezi, and the Huangdi Neijing. I'm telling you, not since the Tang Dynasty did the Taoists at court have it so good. So Huizong and Linling Su, they had this nice symbiotic relationship where one fed off the other. Huizong got to enjoy the Taoist master's endless flattery and writings about his divinity. And Linling Su, he milked it for all he could and had a real nice thing going for himself. In the Taoism business, he was the top producer. Then Huizong tried to reconcile Taoism and Confucianism. And both couldn't stand each other, and they were bitter rivals at court. The Confucianists looked at these Taoist masters like they were, you know, total kooks, total frauds. But that didn't mean Huizong didn't at least try to show through all kinds of fancy explanations and sleight of hand that these two rival philosophies actually had a common origin. Huizong said, quote, The Tao is everywhere. It is in the Confucian scholars' administering of the state. It is in the literati's cultivating of themselves. Before there was differentiation, the separate paths all returned to the early sages, and later sages fit together well. Since the Han, they have split and become different, and the learning of the Yellow Emperor and Lao Tzu is no longer one with the learning of Yao, Shun, the Duke of Zhou, and Confucius. Around 1118, the Taoists were feeling rather secure in their position. Lin Ling Su and his divine Empyrean sect of Taoism had a, had a hammerlock on Huizong as far as royal support went. They started to take the opportunity to whisper in Huizong's ear about these cunning Buddhists and how it was about time somebody dealt with them. And it didn't stop there. Lin Ling Su would even enlist the emperor's support to go after some of his rival Taoist masters. With Huizong's support, all kinds of restrictive measures were passed that hit the Buddhists, not just economically, but in their, in their prayers as well. Official changes were made to various ways Buddhism could be practiced that eh, had a slight Taoist aroma to it. And all the while, Tai Jing was doing what he could to get Huizong to cool it with this Taoism thing. This whole matter of Buddhists versus Taoists was just adding yet another divisive issue at court. The two heavyweights who finally put their foot down and pushed back on this issue were the eunuch general Tong Guan and the crown prince, Prince Huan. He was closing in on 20 years old and already had a mind of his own. All it took in the end 
was enough popular dissatisfaction at the top, coupled with Linling Su ending up on the wrong side of a few natural disasters to topple him. First a drought, then a flood. And when disaster struck and Linling Su couldn't do anything about it, he was out just like that. And in 1119, as he made his way back to his hometown of Wenzhou, he was murdered. And with Lin Ling Su out of the picture, you can guess right away which religion started to make an immediate comeback. But Huizong didn't let this diminish his religious fervor. As far as the divine Imperian sect of Taoism went, in for a penny, in for a pound, he still embraced it. But the good times are about to end for this emperor. And historians all agree that this Taoism phase of Huizong's reign was a big fat waste of the taxpayers' money, and very little was contributed back to society. And questions remain about Huizong's relationship with Taoism. Was he really such a true believer, or did Taoism offer him the best political advantages and act as a counterweight to these Confucian officials? As soon as the year turned to 1120 AD, things took a turn for the worse for Huizong. This is basically the beginning of the end. You'd think with such happy times for the Song Dynasty, all this economic wealth, Kaifeng being the greatest city in its day, all the trade and industry, Huizong and his court of merry men, all the finest artists, literati, Taoists, and all kinds of other hangers-on, and his five dozen children, you can bet the Huizong emperor was really enjoying himself. He must have felt that it sure was great to be the king. And how happy for Huizong to be at the center, the cleverest poet, best painter, his fame as a calligrapher, and his slender gold style. He fancied himself quite the Taoist writer as well, and the best mouthpiece for the wisdom contained in the divine Imperian texts. Oh, what a great life he had. But 1120, all over. From now on, Huizong and the whole... Northern Song Dynasty will be fighting for their lives. And when the end comes, oh man, it's really going to be bad. Let's go back to CHP 126, Ye Liu He founded the Kitan Liao Dynasty. He reigned from 907 to 926. The Liao Dynasty had a great run, but there was a new badass in town who by 1100 was really giving them a lot of pressure. By the time the Liao Tianzuo Emperor began his reign in 1101, everyone knew they weren't long for this world. Here was the problem as far as the whole Song Dynasty top leadership went. In January 1005, after the Zhenzong Emperor took a major drubbing from the Kitans when he tried to recover some lost China territory, they were forced into signing this, this treaty. This was the Treaty of Chanyuan. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And for a hundred years, the Song had been paying for this treaty. Because the Song were in a vastly inferior position, that is to say the Liao could whack them anytime they wanted to, 
In order to keep the Kitan Liao army at bay, the Song government, per the terms of the Chanyuan Treaty, had to send an annual tribute payment of 100,000 ounces of silver and 200,000 bolts of silk. That's a lot of happy coats. And further to this, both emperors were now on equal terms with the Liao emperor being primus inter pares. It was a totally raw deal for the Song. And now, a century later, the Kitans were looking vulnerable and talk began to waft about the palace and Kaifeng saying that now was the golden time to weasel out of that annual tribute payment. But even more than the payment was the whole matter of the 16 prefectures. We discussed this before in the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms episode, uh, CHP 27, and again in the Abaoji episode. In Chinese, this area was called the Yanyun Shiliuzhou. It was an area running east to west from about present-day Beijing to Datong in Shanxi province, about a hundred miles or so. Not a huge piece of real estate, but it was an area of extreme importance. This is the gateway into the heartland. This was the, this was the beltway that ran along the Great Wall and served as, well, China's closest thing they had to a Maginot line. Let me quickly recap from a past episode. Uh, the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms. This period uh, followed the fall of the Tang. It ran from 907 to 979, 72 years in all. Five consecutive dynasties in the north of China. Later Liang, later Tang, later Jin, later Han, and later Zhou. And out of the later Zhou arises Zhao Kuangying, who founded the Northern Song. The later Tang, 923 to 936, this was one of the Shato Turk dynasties. It was founded by Li Tunxu in 923 after he overthrew the hated later Liang dynasty. Thirteen years later, the later Tang bit the dust, too. After the later Tang came the later Jin, the Hou Jin, and it's these guys and their founder, Shi Jing Tang, who in 938 hands those 16 prefectures over to the Liao. And the later Jin go down in history as a puppet dynasty of the Kitan Liao. And from that point on until the time of Huizong, those 16 prefectures were property of the Liao. Try as they might, the Song just, just couldn't get that land back. Song Taizong tried twice and failed miserably. Then Junzong tried and failed, which you know resulted in this big fat annual tribute payment on top of the loss of the 16 prefectures. So shaking loose once and for all from the Liao was a priority. And now with the change in the dynamic up in the northeast of China, there was an opening. And the Song dynasty had more headaches than just the Liao. To the west was the western Xia dynasty. We discussed them too. They were Tangut people who had moved to these lands around uh, Shanxi and Gansu during the Tang Dynasty. They too had been able to extract an annual payment from the Song of 130,000 bolts of silk, 50,000 ounces of silver, and 20,000 caddies of tea. A caddy is a, it's a little over a pound. This all wasn't as bad as it sounded. These annual tributes to the Liao and the Western Xia only consumed maybe 2-3% to 3 of the annual revenue coming into the treasury. 
And the truth is, all the silver that ended up going to these guys ultimately found its way back to China because, well, there wasn't much in the way of things to buy in those parts. So the silver came back to China in the form of purchases of Chinese goods. By 1099, under the Zhezong Emperor, the one immediately preceding Huizong, the Western Xia were pacified. With his eunuch general Tong Guan, Huizong spent no small amount of money and effort to settle things in the West. The Western Xia weren't a pushover and, you know, rose up against the Song invading armies. Things quieted down and the fighting was quelled, but the Song weren't able to recover these former Chinese lands to the West. These military expeditions against the Western Xia and the Qingtang Tibetans as well, located in and around Xining and Qinghai province, might have ended well for the Song army, but by the time it was all over and they declared victory and went home, the Song army was exhausted. Not every scholar agrees that this was a great military victory for Huizong. Having all these Bad guys to the west and north stretched the limits of the Song treasury with military expenditures running at about 75% of state revenue. It was early on, around 1115, that word first got to Huizong that the Liao were starting to soften up. He heard this from a Kitan defector named Zhao Liangsi. And it was from Zhao Liangsi that Huizong first heard about how the Jurchens had been very aggressive in their lands east of the Kitan and were starting to push the Liao around. The Liao rulers were at this grave time having their own internal political squabbles that made their situation even worse. So Zhao Liangsi was the one who sort of got the ball rolling as far as the notion of the Song army helping the Jurchens out in their attempt to put an end to the Kitans of the Liao dynasty. The Abaji of the Jurchens, the leader who arose to lead them to greatness in the region, was called Aguda, Wanyan Aguda. He is the founder of the Jin dynasty, and like several dynasty founders, his temple name was Taizu. He was from the Wanyan tribe of the Jurchens. They were the ones who unified all the clans up in that region into one big nation. Since 1114, Aguda had been leading troops against the Liao in Jilin and Liaoning. And by 1122, Aguda had made fast work of the Liao, and they were back on their heels. I'm jumping ahead, though. Uh, beginning in 1117, Huizong, after being talked into it by Zhao Liangsi, sent the first of what would be seven delegations to the Jurchens to discuss this proposed alliance against the Liao. Zhao Liangsi had thoroughly convinced Huizong that if the Song army invaded the 16 prefectures at Yanqing, they would be welcomed with flowers and open arms as liberators. Hmm, that sounds familiar. So this was the big issue at court, to invade or not to invade. This was no small matter. The Song army was already stretched beyond their means. The treasury wasn't looking too full, but most of all, this war in the north that the leadership in Kaifeng was mulling over was a very risky thing to do and could have unintended consequences. Huizong allowed Tsai Jing and Tong Guan to make the final decision on this. The biggest advocate for war was Wang Fu. Wang had argued, quote, Although the North and South have gotten along for a hundred years, we have suffered repeated humiliations for several reigns. 
the best military strategy is to compound weaknesses and to attack when the other side is blinded. If we do not take the region now, the Jurchen will grow stronger, and the old territories of the Central Plain will never be ours again. Wang Fu had reason to believe this. The Jin armies were rolling all over the Kitans and just savaging them. While all this is going on, 1115, 16, 17, 18, Huizong, as I mentioned earlier, was you know neck deep in this Taoist kick. Lin Ling Su and practicing the divine Empyrean was you know, mostly on his mind. So it was during a time when Huizong really didn't have his eye on the ball that all these potentially dynasty-threatening events were happening. In 1119, Huizong was finally convinced, and the alliance on the sea was signed, the Haishang Zhengmeng. It was called that because the Song and Jin envoys who worked out the treaty over a period of years had to surreptitiously cross the Bohai Sea to meet each other, you know, because the land routes were still controlled by the Liao Kitan forces. The Song were all hot to sign this deal because it involved getting the 16 prefectures back. That was what they wanted. If they joined together with the Jin armies to drive the Liao out of town, part of the deal was that this territory given away to the Liao by Shi Tang in 938 would return to China. Wang Fu and Tong Guan were the strongest advocates for attacking the Liao. After all, the way things were going up there, if now wasn't the perfect time to get those important lands back, when was? Pushing back against Wang Fu and Tong Guan was Cai Jing. He went on record against any alliance with the Jin against the Kitans. He smelled nothing but trouble. And in the end, he was right. In 1120... Huizong sent Zhao Liangsi, the Liao turncoat, now in the employ of the Song, to go see Aguda and talk things over. In those days, you know, a simple mission like that, that was like a six-month business trip. When the two finally meet, and Aguda explains to them the way it's going to be from now on, or else, Zhao Liangsi realizes only too late that these jurchens aren't going to turn out to be the best allies to have living next door. He starts to get the feeling that the Jurchens are going to be a lot worse than the Kitan Liao. And man, did he ever get that one right. Aguda told Zhao Liangsi straight out, whatever tribute you gave to the Liao, now you give it to us. Okay, so much for that cost savings that the treasury was counting on. And Aguda, <laughs> he was one tough guy and a tough negotiator. He didn't use any foreign minister or envoy. He negotiated by himself, face-to-face, -face, and he was one intimidating guy. Aside from the tribute that Aguda was demanding, now he was reneging on his promises about the 16 prefectures, too. Before, they were going to get everything. Now that had been whittled down to some of them. Nonetheless, by 1120, per the agreement made by Aguda... Huizong pulls the trigger, and the go-ahead is given to carry out their end of the agreement and take the city of Yanjing in Yan Prefecture. That was the main mission for the Song army. But Huizong's luck had run out. Domestic trouble was brewing down in Zhejiang and spreading around the region there to Jiangsu, Anhui, and Jiangxi. Thanks to corruption, heavy taxation, and a growing resentment that so much treasure was annually being given away to foreigners, a rebellion broke out led by a gent named Fang La. 
as rebellions went, this one wasn't very long-lasting. It was put down in a year, but it meant having to delay the taking of Yanjing, and it was one more campaign to wear down the already stretched Song army. Huizong, of course, sent Tongguan to go deal with this mess. Huizong had given Tongguan full authority to write brush edicts in Huizong's name. His task was to head south and deal with this Fangla rebellion, take back all the cities and towns that had fallen, including most notably Hangzhou. By May 1121, Fangla and his family had been captured, and the worst was over. The timing to have to deal with this rebellion was terrible. It meant having to delay the taking of Yanjing by a year. And you can imagine what Aguda was thinking because he didn't think too much of the Chinese. He was already sensing something about their viability as an empire. But he was still giving them the benefit of the doubt. As Huizong's armies were bogged down dealing with Fang La, Aguda's Jin armies were just rolling over the Kitans, and one by one they were picking off the 16 prefectures themselves without any need for Song army involvement. This naturally emboldened Aguda, who must have been thinking, gee, these guys are taking forever to mobilize, and now, you know, who needs them? The Song hopes had originally been pinned on getting these 16 prefectures back, finally. Then their hopes had been dwindled down to getting as many as possible back. Now, after looking totally useless in front of Aguda, and after delaying their end of the deal for a year, Aguda had changed his mind about everything. Now he was saying the Song could take Yanjing only, and he added a caveat that they could only have Yanjing if they invaded and made a difference in the taking of the city. Remember, early 12th century, Yanjing is, you know, in and around where, you know, Beijing is today. Throughout 1120 and into 1121, Agata was really turning the thumbscrews on Huizong and trying to force a result. But with the Fangla Rebellion not quite over yet, and Tongguan tied down in the south, all the Song leadership could do was stall and, you know, say they were coming. You know, not just yet. Not till April 1122 were the Song able to mobilize their 100,000-strong army, led by trusty and dependable Tongguan. They started marching north towards Yanjing. Two offensives were launched against the Kitan holdouts in the city. The first attempt failed, and the second one went even worse. Prior to attacking, Tongguan had reached out to his Jurchen counterparts and requested they combine together to help defeat the Liao. Aguda was thinking, why in the heck do I have to help these guys out? I gave them one single thing to do, and now they can't even do that. I mean, who needs these guys? Well, the taking of Yanjing by the Song army didn't go well. In fact, it was a good old-fashioned debacle. And when Aguda got wind of this, it changed his mind about his new Song allies. I mean, even the residents of Yanjing sided with the Jin, so much for welcoming the Song with open arms. Well, by now, Aguda felt there was no longer any need to be civil to these guys. He still offered the Song, the city of Yanjing, plus six other prefectures. And the kicker was, only the Han populace of those prefectures would be subject to the Song Emperor. Everyone else, any non-Han, were subjects to the Jin. <laughs> well, how are you going to do that? And it didn't end there. All of a sudden, the amount of tribute demanded was increased. Huizong didn't have any 
bargaining chips and with the specter of a possible Jin invasion looming over his head in 1123, Hui Zong did what he had to do and gave in on the demands. He got Yan Jing all right and some of the prefectures, but at a very high price. 200,000 ounces of silver, 300,000 bolts of silk, and 1 million strings of cash that would be paid in the form of a one-time land tax levied on the inhabitants of newly reacquired Yanjing. This was about 20% of the entire revenue that could be had from Yanjing. So, all things considered, this was a raw deal to the max. Nonetheless, Huizong felt that, you know, being the emperor who recovered at least a portion of the 16 prefectures was, you know, something to celebrate. But actually, it wasn't much to celebrate. When Tongguan and the Song army entered Yanjing, all they got was a husk of a city. The Jin had already been there for six months and had completely trashed the place and looted it for anything of value. 1123, this was a low point, but it was going to get a lot worse. The war with the Liao being economically raped by the Jin, and now all the social problems acquired from winning back parts of the 16 prefectures, including all the refugees needing assistance, was not quite, but almost, the final straw for Huizong in the northern Song dynasty. Had it not been for Huizong's period of building all these monuments, all the other construction he commissioned, all the money spent on promoting Taoism, if not for such wasteful spending, I suppose it might not have been as bad as it was. No matter which country or civilization or what century you were talking about, to manage an army costs a ton of money. Without any financing, you couldn't pay soldiers, obtain weapons, or do anything to launch a military expedition. And that's the boat Huizong sort of found himself in when 1123 rolled around. Here's what Tsai Jing's son, Tsai Tao, said about Huizong at this juncture. In 1122, because of the opening of the northern border, expenditures were exceptional. All the treasuries, both the privy purse and government, were empty, much to Huizong's dismay. At the time, Wang Fu was worried by the losses, so he took the advice of an old clerk to institute a service exemption fee throughout the country. The service that one was being exempt from was the military service in Yen, which everyone should have contributed to, but they were now being allowed to give money instead. But this fee only raised about 62 million strings of cash, and by the spring of 1125, most of this had been burned through. In 1123, Huizong got some good news. Aguba died in September of that year. The bad news was that Aguda's younger brother, Wenyan Wuchimai, became the new Jin Emperor Taizong, and he was much worse than Aguda as far as leaning on the northern Song. Wenyan Wuchimai wasn't looking to be a good neighbor with the northern Song. After he captured and killed the last Liao Dynasty Emperor Tianzuo, he set his sights on the Song. From everything he was able to tell, the Song and their rich city of Kaifeng were ripe for the taking. Huizong sent a congratulatory letter carried by a diplomatic mission to the new Emperor Taizong. When this delegation returned to Kaifeng after meeting the new Jin Emperor, they told everyone that while they were guests at the Jin court, they were threatened, treated shabbily, and in no uncertain terms led to believe that sooner or later the Jin were going to take them out. 
11.25, wasn't looking good at all. Spies sent to see what the Jin were up to came back with alarming reports that indicated they were getting set to invade China. By the end of 11.25, Hui Zong had to resort to melting down whatever gold ceremonial objects he could spare in order to try and buy off the Jin and delay what was increasingly looking like the inevitable. And the inevitable happened in November of 11.25. When Tong Guan rushed back to the palace with the latest update, Hui Zong was still hoping for a miracle and exploring ways to keep the Jin in their northern lands. But Tong Guan gave Hui Zong the bad news. The Jin had already invaded, and one army was heading towards Taiyuan, and another army was heading towards Kaifeng. The Jurchens were coming. The excuse that the Jin gave to invade revolved around a Jin defector who ran to the court of Huizong to try and cut a side deal. Now, part of the agreement made between the Jin and Song was that neither side could cut any side deals with anyone. So, by merely talking to this Jin defector named Zhang Jie, they had broken one of the terms of the treaty. Because the Song had negotiated with Zhang Jie, that was all the Jin Taizong emperor needed to break any agreements and go after them. The Liao emperor Tianzuo had already been captured and killed. The Liao dynasty was no more. Now it was time to deal with the rich pickings south of Manchuria. Before moving in on the northern Song territories, Jin Taizong had offered Huizong a bum deal. Move everything south of the Yellow River and allow the Jin to take over all lands north of there. And then we'll all be square. No invasion would take place. While Huizong was fulminating what to do about that raw deal, the Jin went on a rampage. Not only did they take back everything that once belonged to the Liao, they also snatched Yan Jing back from the Song and were heading in a southerly direction. It was at this point that Huizong and his closest advisors started to think about a worst-case scenario. You see, the counselors that worked for Huizong knew that most of the time it was necessary to keep the emperor in the dark. So it was often the case where Huizong lived in this big bubble and hadn't a clue about, you know, which end was up, especially whenever bad news was concerned. So it was quite a wake-up call in 1125 when all of a sudden the roof was starting to cave in and finally Huizong was getting a feel for how desperate the situation was. The crown prince Juan was 25 years old by now, so he knew what was going on. And when it was suggested that Huizong escape to the south and begin setting up a government in exile, Prince Juan didn't go for that at all. You mean Huizong abdicates and flees south and Prince Juan becomes the new emperor right when the Jurchens are about to sack Kaifeng? Well, he didn't like that idea. As the Jin marched on Kaifeng, their envoys were, were still negotiating with Huizong's team. Huizong had this to say, quote, Two cycles of twelve years have passed since I, succeeding to my highly virtuous ancestors, was placed above the literati and common people. Despite the caution in my heart, my errors have been visible to the world. Mediocre myself, I inherited a flourishing dynasty. But the avenues for criticism were blocked so that on a day-to-day -day basis I heard only sycophants. Favorites gained power, and the greedy could do as they pleased. Wise and able scholars were caught in the proscription on factions, and for years have not been able to influence political affairs. 
Taxes and impositions have exhausted the people's resources. Military and labor service have worn out the army and levies. Many of the projects undertaken proved of no benefit. Extravagance became the fashion, depleting the sources of wealth. Yet profit seekers still keep making demands. Even though the clothing and rations for the army have not yet been secured, those with more than enough to eat still enjoy the benefits of their wealth and rank. Ominous portents did not bring me to my senses, nor did I recognize the resentment of the multitudes. The fault is all mine, but my regrets are too late. Well, he got that right. There weren't any options available to the northern Song government than to cut and run. Huizong attempted gallantly to rally the forces and be open to almost any kind of idea, but it was too late. The barbarians were almost at the gate. After everyone took stock of the situation, it was decided Huizong should abdicate and get out of town ASAP. And so Huizong wrote out the instructions of what needed to be taken care of when he departed. And Huizong was unaware of just how dire his predicament was. While he handled it with urgency, he just didn't know how urgent it really was. He should have already hit the road days or weeks before. Why he waited till Christmas Day, 1125, to formally abdicate? Well, I'm sure he wondered that too later on. And that was that. He reigned from February 1100 to January 1125. In these three episodes, with the help of Patricia Ebrey's book on Emperor Huizong, we've taken a closer look than usual at any individual emperor. When Huizong took over for his brother, the Zhezong Emperor in 1100, Although China wasn't whole, and they had the Kitan Liao and the Western Xia to deal with, times were good for the Middle Kingdom. People walking around China's largest cities surely thought, never in Chinese history did the Lao Baixing have it so good. We saw how Huizong demonstrated a much greater interest in the arts than he did for governing. He didn't neglect his duties, but historians agree he could have paid more attention. Had Huizong taken the benefit of the world's biggest economy to build up the nation, the military, and save for a rainy day, the tide of history might have been influenced. But once Huizong got a hold of that imperial credit card, he went on a spending binge. And now, in 1125, all the chickens had come home to roost. But Huizong doesn't die until 1135, so he's got another 10 years to live yet, and therefore... His story isn't over yet. We'll pick up next time and look at the excruciating end of Huizong in part four. I'm planning another quick China trip for early June. Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou. Gotta make sure I'm home for the World Cup opener, June 12th, 10 a.m. Claremont Standard Time between uh, Brazil and Croatia. If you haven't checked out the new and improved CHP website, go check it out. Fully optimized for mobile devices. Thank you, Paul, in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a nice, hot, and dry Claremont, California. That's right, the city of trees and PhDs. We have more of the latter per square inch than anywhere else. And that's documented, just like Nuff said. Take care, everyone, and it's my greatest hope in the world that you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.